You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center that is the headquarters of the Office of Cable, TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of D.C., If you don't follow us already, you've missed the boat. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council's just like your workplace, except with a dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Listeners, we're working our way through recording three rounds of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Those focused, uh, the three prior rounds focused mainly on getting to know the council members' backgrounds, successes, struggles, and the people who shape and surround them. In the fourth round, we're broadening things out, tackling issues and topics that interest the council members and me. Uh, So now, without any further ado, uh, we'll greet the council member who holds the record for most listened to episode of Hearing the Council. Um, what? Which is a bit uh, damning with faint praise. What? Um, but yes, of the 35 or so episodes of hearing counsel that have been taped with the 13 council members, uh, a number of them uh, three to four times, uh, your uh, previous episode has been listened to 180-something times. And that's the record. That is the record. That is the standing record. And it's one of those records that is like like the Cal Ripken continuous game streak that, that looks unbeatable. Mm, I wouldn't equate this with Iron Man. No, no, no. But it's, I'm just saying that the closest one behind that, I forget who is, it is, is like at 130. So it's, you know, there's a serious number of uh, listens like behind. like 50% more. Uh, Not quite, but uh, substantially. That's impressive, impressive. Yes. And speaking of impressive, um, as people in the South say, bless your heart, um, because... Uh, we taped these uh, episodes in advance, and we just had the second uh, budget vote yesterday, and you still honored your uh, appointment to come in and tape this um, interview. Yeah, that's good. We kept the funding in place for your show. Yes, but I greatly respect that because other council members who won't be named would have used that as an excuse to, to bail, to, you know, head to the beach, but you're here. Um Having said that, uh, we're this episode, the fourth round, um, we are kind of letting the council members pick their subject. And we're treating this as a bit of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours uh, subject matter. 
because when I reached out to your office and asked what subject you wanted to talk about, I was told that you wanted to talk about the recent, your recent induction into the Hall of Fame for your high school. Uh, true. I um, was inducted into the Hall of Fame of Cleveland Heights, University Heights High School, otherwise known to, as Heights High to students when we were there. 3,000 kids, grades 10, 11, 12. And uh, they actually, the school enrollment's gone down substantially since then. I had not been back to the school in a number of years. And in fact, they modernized it. I think that's the term of art we use here in Washington, D.C., probably for about half the cost. And the enrollment is about half what it was when I was there. So the, the, uh, this is a bit of an unusual topic for, uh, for the show. And that's where we get to the uh, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Because there was another topic from a previous show I wanted to return to. And that's what we're going to oh. spend a portion of the later half of the show addressing. Oh, okay. But the first half of the show we are going to address with great seriousness and vigor. Your induction. I gave a great speech. Yes. And uh, was directed to or oriented toward the students, the high school students, and uh, what uh, their future could look like, which is namely whatever they want it to look like, which may not be clear to them today. Unfortunately, the audience was almost entirely adults. No, they weren't sleeping. It was adults. Thank you, Josh. Um, actually, people were staying awake during the induction. There was a woman who was inducted with me um, who had been a, um, in a concentration camp during the um, Second World War uh, from hung- Hungary. And uh, she was, uh, I believe, a teenager or younger at the time, and her family was able to escape and, um, and came to the United States, and she went to my high school. This was years before I was there. Uh, so it was an interesting uh, group. And what country was she from? I believe it was Hungary. Okay. In fact, you've got the program right there. We could look it up. I, I do. I was provided with the program as a courtesy. Yes. Um, it's unclear if I get to keep the program for the archives or if it needs to be returned um, for the Mendelssohn uh, personal family archives. I have several copies, so you probably could keep that for the archives. Okay. okay. She was maybe the most interesting last year. Mm-hmm. I've been admonished by my communications director that I didn't tell her that last year inducted into my high school Hall of Fame were the Kelsey brothers, who were two professional football players in the National Football League. Okay. And did I also hear that either this year or last year, the person who invented the uh, punting um, football holder the thing? Tea. It's tea. a hard rubber tee. Uh, for uh, football kickers. Uh, no, he was uh, Jay Siegel. He was uh, inducted a number of years ago. Okay. And I did, didn't know him when I was at Heights High, uh, but he was, uh, I think, my class year. And uh, I don't know that any of your 180 listeners will um, know this, but he uh, knew and worked out with uh, Lou, Lou the Toe Groza, who uh, Lou Groza was the uh, football kicker for the... Cleveland Browns, back uh, when uh, Jim Brown was a linebacker and there were a running back, and uh, there were, you know, that was a great football team. So Lou the Togroza, after retiring from football, who uh, lived in Cleveland, and Jay Siegel um, learned to kick with him. 
and then invented the football team. And this was now, a, this was an actual. Invented the football, there was a football team, but he, he invented a better one, which was used by the NFL. And this was an actual classmate of yours. Yeah. And what's it been like living in his shadow? Well, I didn't know him because there were a thousand kids in my high school, in my grade. In my grade, okay. there were three thousand kids in the school. We had a principal for the school, and then we had what were called unit principals, a principal for each grade. That's how big the school was. And I think we've covered some of this material in the past, but tell us about high school Phil. Um, not anything to tell about. Wasn't much, which was the point of the speech I gave. And I'm being a bit serious here that, uh, you know, where you are in high school doesn't say where you're going to be when you uh, are much older. And uh, I wasn't active in extracurricular activities other than the second semester of my senior year, I was on the um, speech and debate team. But were you, uh, we, we can assume, I think, fairly comfortable you weren't a jock. Were you a nerd? Were you a greaser? Were you a uh, uh, druggie? Were you, uh, what, what kind of group were you in? Were you like a music, like a metalhead? Were you, did they we have those We didn't have metalheads back then. Remember how old I am, Josh. Okay, were you, uh, did you jitterbug? I have more gray hair than you. Did you jitterbug? I wasn't that old. Okay, what, what group were you in? Uh, but the Turtles performed at uh, my high school my uh, in 10th grade. That's pretty cool. Okay. At my high school, in the auditorium, the Turtles. You know, like Eleanor. Like Fred Flintstone, where he would play Turtles with, like, dinosaur bones? Do you even know what I'm talking about? I've, I have heard of the Turtles, but I couldn't name a song that they I liked. just did, Eleanor. Okay. Um, so anyway, so you're not going to tell me anything about you in high school. Were you in a group? Were you in an out group? Did you suffer from teasing? Um, I didn't suffer from teasing. I would not say that I was in a group. Um, the to the extent that I hung out with kids in high school, they were probably more of the hippie line of things. Okay. Um, so would you say I was you sort not of, a jock. Would you say you sort of passed through school unnoticed? Yeah. Yeah. I could say yes a third time. Okay. Well, I mean, what, what I think is interesting... Uh, you no, but that's the point, is that uh, where you are in high school isn't necessarily where you're going to end up. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the best... the. Uh, so-called best-performing kids in, in my high school grade uh, ended up uh, not really doing much of anything as adults. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I, it takes a lot of sort of parsing of, of various interviews, but looking at the current council, um, there are very few high achievers, high school high achievers. Um, most of the folks on the, the council currently struggled in school and were very much late bloomers. Yeah. Um, which is kind of an interesting lesson. I mean, a powerful lesson, I think, to kids in school. That so many kids, I think, are ready to give up the second they struggle um, and uh, think that not, uh, you know, that, that just not much is going to come of them. And, and I mean, not that all kids are, like, planning on becoming council members, but I think it's a fairly uh, yeah, but esteemed it might be role. That the uh, not being at the top uh, presents more challenges, which might be more character building. 
just putting that out as a possibility. Uh, but another way of looking at it is that uh, those who are in elected office, we should be ordinary people. We should be people of the community. Uh, we shouldn't be somehow different, um, the cream of the crop or the, um, uh, the aristocracy. No, we should be commoners with the common folk. Uh, I'm trying to put that in general terms, but I think that is a theory, an important theory of uh, elected uh, representational government, is that you want people from the community. It, it speaks to the issue, for example, of um, uh, whether, and this is going to sound like I'm straying a bit, and maybe I am, but whether those who are in elected office should or should not be allowed to have outside jobs. Um, if they, and, and I don't, and I never have. But uh, if we want the citizen farmer to be in the state legislature, uh, then uh, he or she is going to be a citizen farmer. They're going to have a job when they're not uh, doing their legislative duties. It kind of, um, it, it surprised me, and it's uh, quite different than our experience here in Washington, that when uh, Michael Bush, the uh, former speaker, the late speaker of the Maryland uh, House of Delegates, passed away. Uh, he worked for the State Department of Recreation, and he was the speaker of, the, of their House of Delegates. Um, just making the point that uh, you, you do, there, there is an advantage. Um, there is a theory, a good theory, behind having people who are just of the community. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I, I understand where uh, good government folk are coming from, but if you want people that come from a, a background where they're not of means, so they get where voters are coming from, um, that don't have an outside job, um, and that are uh, not susceptible to taking money illicitly while they're in office, um, it's it, that's sort of a tough package, you know. It's it's for folks to not come from anywhere, not take, not have a second job, and not take money is that's a tough road to hoe. I mean, you really need a public call to to put yourself through that. You know, the hours, the eighteen hour days, seven days a week that you guys do. I mean, you you shouldn't put yourself in that position if you're not willing to do it. But it's it's a tough uh, position to be in. Well, and I've argued, uh, because the issue of ethics has been an issue around since I became chairman, because as you know, I became chairman uh, as a result of a resignation of my predecessor with regard to uh, criminal issues. The, uh, we find, we look for, and when I say we, I'm speaking of the broad we, uh, we look for solutions, legislative answers, um, and uh, as if we can legislate values, legislate morality. Uh, legislate somebody's ethical character, and you can't. Um, and there's nothing wrong with some of the requirements that we've put in place, except that if we think that's the answer, then we're letting, we're, we're not doing the hard work ourselves, which is to, as voters, look at and challenge the moral character of the people who ask for our vote. That's our responsibility as voters. And uh, the, the folks who are advocates uh, they as well missed the point when they say the answer is we're going to have tighter ethics laws instead of saying the answer is we need to have a better caliber, moral caliber of our elected officials. Yeah, that makes sense. To what extent when you were in 
school, do you think you struggled with any of the issues that a lot of the kids in particularly some of the tougher schools in D.C. struggle with? Um, failing facilities, temptation, um, uh, absence failing, of role models. Failing facilities, uh, the high school I went to, I realize now was so overcrowded that uh, we had to, if it was bad weather, we had to run track in the tunnel underneath the new wing. Um, the facilities weren't great. But, uh, it had a I, new, but it had a new wing. Yes, which wasn't big enough. And um, mm -hmm. the uh, I, I've told the story about how uh, uh, the um, gym was, uh, athletics was separated, boys and girls, and the boys' gym, and we had, uh, there was a swimming pool. In fact, there was a, a new swimming pool for the boys and an old swimming pool for the girls. Well, that, you know, I, we didn't appreciate at the time the inequality there. Um, the, uh, we were not allowed to bring our own swimsuits, and they didn't provide swimsuits most of the time. Um, yeah, so we had to swim naked. Um, different kind of challenges, but I'm, I'm not going to compare them to some of the challenges that you see um, in neighborhoods, some of the neighborhoods of Washington that are struggling with poverty. Uh, they're just very different challenges. I, I was touring a school earlier today, uh, two, school, two schools as a matter of fact, and the principals of both schools spoke of the trauma that kids bring with them or that, they, that, that the kids have had to face and then they come to school. Um, there were multiple, multiple stories. One of them was a kid who had watched, uh, I guess it was his brother or father, shot in front of him, shot multiple times and killed in front of him. Um, and uh, there were multiple kids at these schools, two different schools, who they can point to a parent, an uncle, a niece, a friend, a sister, who've been uh, murdered or shot. Um, that was not an experience. Uh, when That was not an experience at, at Cleveland Heights High School. How do we handle that in a school system that some would say struggles with the basics of education when trauma-informed education is a much, much, much more complicated, difficult PhD level education task compared to kind of the garden variety education that you and I might have received. Excellent though it may have been when we went to school. When our school system struggles with repairing, I realize the school system doesn't repair the doors on the building, but keeping the school buildings repaired and the basics of school books and educating children. How can we expect them to do trauma-informed education, which is well, massively complicated? No, we can. Uh, and uh, you know, research around education is uh, uh, is far more. Far there's been far more research in the last 10, 20, 30 years than when you and I went to school. And there's uh, educators or research into how to educate. Um, continues to advance every year. Um, we, we do know how to provide trauma-informed education. The uh, challenge is that um, we're not providing those resources to make it happen. And there are a variety of reasons why that doesn't happen. Um, Financial resources? The, 
resources in terms of people or one as one one of the schools said to me today adults we need more adults in the school which was speaking of teachers for class size uh social workers to help with social emotional issues um other adults to help uh just to provide support to the teachers and the counselors um there need to be more resources and yeah that does translate uh, often to money but it also translates to uh, flexibility in how we approach teaching in our schools as one principal said you know my school is not the same as other schools and uh, she wasn't making the point that her school was unique she was making the point that every school is unique and that you can't have a one size fits all those were her words for all middle schools you have to recognize that the issues that are facing one middle school are different than for another middle school uh, even two middle schools that are both dealing with kids in poverty and uh and where some of them are uh bringing to school a lot of social emotional issues uh so we know how to do it we just we do and and uh, every kid can be educated there, there's no kid who starts out as a you know an infant stupid and uh um the the challenge is that it is it is such a huge system and for some of these schools it is such an overwhelming uh challenge that um the system in the school can't get ahead of the problem and the way i look at it is that uh uh these are kids these are tomorrow's adults and uh we can we can figure out how to break the cycle of poverty and everything that's associated with it or we can just let it continue and hope that some of the kids we reach and we teach i choose the former i think i think we can and we ought to it's a duty of our government to um reach all of these kids and teach them here's my idea which i've been throwing out recently um if you come in in the last place in the nfl you get the first round draft pick and the idea is to you know eventually re equilibrate the uh the mm -hmm. teams I think we need the schools that have the that 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 struggle the most. We need to figure out a way to give them a first round draft pick to reshuffle the deck. I don't know what that would be. I know part of that is rebuilding the schools, the physical structures. I don't know if that's principles. Well, I um, think we too put too much into rebuilding the schools and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's not the that that's not the solution. Yeah, but we need to find um, some way to give them well, the equivalent of a first round quarterback draft. Uh, draft I look pick. at it to use a word that uh, a lot of people are using these days. I look at it as an equity issue. So the school that's in last place to use your metaphor um needs more resources. I don't know what a first round draft pick would be, but it needs more resources. It should get more resources. Uh one of the principals said to me today that um that one of the challenges in her school is that the adults don't participate the way they do with schools west of the park. Um yeah, I, that's an equity issue and we can we can counterbalance that by providing more resources, which actually was the council's intent several years ago when we adopted what's now called the at-risk weight that's more funding for schools where there are at-risk kids and at-risk is defined as kids on TANF for example, kids who are a year behind or 2 years behind in school. um meaning that they're struggling there there are other measures they roughly correlate to poverty um and um the intent is to get more resources to these schools that isn't what's happening and it's what needs to happen okay um now we're going to uh, come to the topic that I wanted to throw yeah, in yeah i know none of this had to do with my high school i was proud to be inducted into the hall of fame 
um, means something, but it was a very different experience than uh, what we're dealing with. Why, why do you think it's so powerful for you? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but, but it's clear that it, that it truly resonates with you. Well, um, I think we all, uh, I, think, I think most people um, try to live up to some standard they set for themselves when they were young. And when I say some standard, it might not even be articulable, but they have some standard. Uh, I want to be something. And I don't mean I want to be a spaceman or I want to be a fire fireman. Um, it might be more existential than that. Um, and this is sort of recognizing that maybe I did okay. Yeah, and your mom and your grandmother set a, a high standard for you, public service standard. Yeah, so my mother always said that I could do better. Oh, that's what moms she are for. She was not pleased with my grades. That's what, that's what moms are for. I had had my picture taken with uh, Bill Clinton, and my mother wondered why I was so heavy in the photo. So that's what moms are for. Um, okay, we're very quickly going to come back to the uh, the topic that, that I was holding aside. In yes. uh, two episodes ago, you had said that you had plans of uh, bringing back a pre-apprenticeship uh, bill that you had uh, tried um, about a decade or more ago to uh, get through the council and had not had success with. Um, and I thought someone would hear that on the episode and it would make at least some news, um, but it didn't. So I just wanted to get a sense of where um, things stood with that because I dug up, I believe, what is the legislation, the um, 2005 and then the subsequent 2007 uh, Labor Requirements Act, the uh, Community Builder Training Program. Um, the uh, the idea being that what you had said in the previous episode was you had said that um, apparently you cannot restrict apprenticeships to D.C. residents, but you would be able to restrict pre-apprenticeship to uh, D.C. residents only. Yeah, um... So I, I just was curious. talking about it uh, some time ago. Yeah, this you was and I. August of 2018. And uh, it was on my mind at the time of the interview because of another conversation I had had. Um, unfortunately, this has kind of drifted off to the side as I've gotten more involved with other issues like education. Uh, the thinking behind it was that um, there are organizations like labor unions that have apprenticeship programs. And apprenticeship programs are a great way for somebody to get the training necessary to have a specialty in uh, one of the trades, Electri electrical apprenticeship or plumbing, um, or plumbing apprenticeship, yes, carpenter. Uh, the carpenters union has an apprenticeship program. There are very few businesses that do it, and the businesses that do it tend not to have the same kind of longevity in the plan in, in the training program, or maybe I could say continuity, as the unions do. If I join the carpenters union, I'm a member of the union, and I participate in their apprenticeship program. Right. Uh, if I get the apprenticeship program through an employer, uh, typically with construction, I'm with that employer as long as there's work, and if there is no work, then I'm not with the employer in the apprenticeship program. Apprenticeship training doesn't continue. Uh, but apprenticeship is a great way for people to get training in these, these trades. And these trades can 
pay a decent wage. Uh, the uh, what would be better is if the uh, we could direct this to DC residents. We want uh, we want DC residents to be getting the jobs that are that uh, we're creating in the city, construction jobs, all the cranes that you see up. And we can limit uh, focus a pre-apprenticeship program on DC residents, you know, just as we do uh, education, public schools or for DC residents. Um, so that was the thinking behind it. Uh, it's more complicated. It's more complicated because it requires a really um, um, robust apprenticeship program through the Department of Employment Services, which it is not. And um, a program that is just on top of making sure that the whoever is providing the program is actually providing the program to uh, individuals and trying to help with getting the pre-apprenticeship pre programs underway. Um, and that just, um, there, there's, I, I've never seen that uh, sufficient interest, if you will, from the Department of Employment Services. It's disappointing. Gotcha. So, so I've kind of moved on, um, and I've, I'm now more firmly of the belief that the best job training program we have is public education. Okay. Gotcha. So, so this is... At the moment, it's nowhere. Okay, but at least we've answered that question. Yes. Okay. Then we are going to go to our closeout question, which you'll remember... Uh, Several rounds ago, uh, we we ranked dessert topics, um, and you, to no one's surprise, said rhubarb pie was your favorite dessert. Still is. Yes. Had some strawberry rhubarb pie the other day. Well, you told me that strawberry rhubarb was nowhere, and pure rhubarb was the only way to go. Pure rhubarb is the only way to go, but you have to find pure rhubarb. And since I don't make pie, mm -hmm. uh, I uh, can't find pure rhubarb. So you got to take what you get. Okay. Yes. So this time, um, and this is going to be interesting because I'm not sure if you do any of these things. Um, we're having people rank what they couldn't live without. Phone. The phone, like actual talking and part of the phone. Text, email, and social media. Is that my total choice? Because I got to live without all those things. Yes. Just... Put them, in, put them in order. What's the easiest one to get rid of and what's the hardest to get rid of? Uh, social media is the easiest to get rid of. What's next? Right. Well, you got rid of that. You gave it to me. So, <laughs> done. So, text, email, well, Is that why we're doing so well with social media? Do you, all your listeners know that you've grown um, the uh, Twitter followers for the uh, council? Yes. I, um, think, I think it was like minus three to 28,000, 33,000. Yes. How By many? definition, if they're listening to this show, they know that. <laughs> yes, the universe of people listening to this show do do know that. Do know what? That that the Twitter universe has exploded, thanks to me. Oh, you didn't tell me what the number is. 32, 33,000. Yeah. Just should, remember, AOC is like 18 million, so you got a ways to go. Yes, that's true. Uh, what was what, What's the rest of the list? Is the phone, social media, phone, text? text, email. Social media. So you said social media is last. What's the one that, that you'd be most hesitant to give up? If that's my choice. They are. I mean, I'd be most hesitant to give up, like, uh, toffee, but that wasn't on the choice. No, it wasn't. Um, Here, I'll answer for you. Phone, 
email, text, social media. Okay. Yeah, that, that I'm, I'm, get, I'm, getting, I'm getting a nod from your communications director. Mm-hmm. And we're out of time. So, all right. In, you have in, to come in, up in, with a better closeout question next time, in, Josh. In the future, we may conduct this Josh, interview without I you. I want a better closeout <laughs> question next time. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, well, thank you again for joining us, listeners. Uh, tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson, and this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Josh. You're very kind. And thank you, listeners. Yes, you're very kind to have joined us for a fourth time. We'll negotiate the fifth. I want to pay raise. Right. You can just read the entirety of your Hall of Fame speech, uh, like Mussolini style, for the next episode. Okay, I don't know, Mussolini. Are we off the air yet? No. What is Mussolini style? (laughs) Thank you, listeners. Take care. Bye-bye.